Luke chapter 14, verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there were in front of him, there and there were there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you, come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he was he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that would be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat, the bre- eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and to look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And Father, we ask you for help as we work our way through this passage. Lord, help us to follow um, the thread of thought here, that we would understand um, the implications of what Jesus is saying. Father, that you would speak to us individually. Lord, we each are in different places. And so, Father, I pray that your word would help us along in our relationship with you. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first two verses of this chapter, there's sort of this, the introduction of the story. We see that Jesus is heading out to lunch. Uh, he's invited to one of the leaders of the Pharisees. This could um, be an actual one of the head guys of the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Pharisees. These are like the top dogs. They're everybody who's of any importance within the Pharisees. They're there and they're present. It just happens that this meal was on a Saturday. So we have another Saturday story. Through this first three or four verses, we see the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath comes up. The Sabbath is a day that was created by God to give man some rest, uh, time with his family, to worship God, and just to take a break um, from day-to-day life. And yet they, the Pharisees, had turned it into a bunch of do's and don'ts that were so piled onto the people that it was a huge burden. And there just happens to be this man with dropsy there. Now, dropsy just sounds bad, doesn't it? But I don't think we use this term. Most think that this, this dropsy is actually what we refer to. I'm not a doctor, but an edema where there's an organ or something inside of you is leaking fluid and your flesh is swelling. This is a catastrophic sort of disease. This person was terminal. And in this setting, it does, it, it's not coincidence, in my opinion, that this all happened. If we turn back a couple chapters to the end of Luke chapter 11, after Jesus had, he was invited to another meal and he had totally called out the, the Pharisees and the scribes when they had judged him for sitting down at the meal without going through all of their religious baptism. He confronted them. He made them angry. He left the meal. And in verse 53, we read, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So, so this, this plot, this trying to trap up Jesus, ultimately they would get Jesus saying that Jesus claimed to be God, which he did claim to be God, and they were going to cr- crucify him for blasphemy, that he claimed to be something that no man is. And so here's this situation in chapter 14. They pull together, hey, come over to my house. We'll get all the guys. We'll get the people that can testify against Jesus. We'll have a meal. We'll, we'll make it out like it's just we're being hospitable. We're welcoming into our home. We'll do it on a Saturday. And I know a guy that has a terminal illness. We don't know much about this guy. How he, But he, I don't think the guy sticks around because after he's healed, he's sent away. So they find this guy with a terminal illness. And, and before we just kind of move on that, most of us know somebody or have known somebody that was terminally ill, that was dying of cancer, was dying of whatever they're going through. And towards the end of that person's life, it's a painful, painful, bitter, hard time of knowing what to do, what not to do, anything to try to extend their life. But then you reach a point of like the hopelessness when hospice is brought in and you just do whatever you can do to make that person comfortable. This is that man. And these religious guys have no heart for this individual. They find this guy. Let's bring him into our midst. Let's use him in order to trap Jesus. When God is less concerned about religion and more concerned about individuals and our relationship and caring for us. 
And it really is a horrible and disgusting picture that we see these guys doing, that they would use this poor guy just to come over, just to trap Jesus. And as the story unfolds, so here they are. Not a word is spoken that's recorded. And in verse 3, we see that Jesus answered and spoke. And so when I read this, this whole, like, what is this answering? Nobody asked him a question. But he can, he sees what's going on here. He sees, okay, these are, this is the leader of the Pharisees, like the, the ruler of the Sanhedrin, most possibly. You have a Saturday, and there just happens to be a, a guy who's terminally ill that's not really a part of the, the, the party. They're trying to set me up of what they're going to do. How would he answer? And in this sort of, like, it, it never works well when you're trying to trap God. Like, it just doesn't work. It works. This is a great, on a sidebar, this is a great tool for raising children. In your home where you can hold them and let them scream until the windows shatter and it won't do any good. This is great. You set up, you know, traps, things they're not supposed to do. You tell them no or sit down and you make them write it out. Because in public, you can't do that. Because, like, you've, you can't just let a kid scream at the top of the lungs. Somebody's going to give. But in your home, like, this was great with, you know, being a pastor. Elizabeth hasn't had to go there yet, but... During the week, I'd bring in Grace, and I would just read as boring as I could be, and Anna would just hold her. No! (laughs) It's not going to work. It's a training tool. But with Jesus, you can't trap him. Like, you can't. They're trying to get him in this sort of this pickle. And so Jesus sees what's going on, and he answers, and he spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. So the lawyers, Luke, because he's not Jewish, always refers to the scribes as lawyers. These are guys who oversaw the Pharisees. They wrote the law. All of these fine rules that they created, they kind of administered them. So these guys were in the know. They had all of the answers because they came up with all the rules. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, is it lawful? Is it legal for me to heal on the Sabbath? Great question. Or not me, just is it legal in general? And so here you have all these guys with all the answers and their silence crickets at twice in verse six, we see the same thing. They could make no reply to this. So here they'd had this trap. Jesus comes in with a question and I love it because if Jesus was to accuse them of this say, Oh no, brother, we never came up with this. There's so much power and wisdom in asking people questions instead of telling them what they think. So Jesus asked this question, is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? There's a sick guy here, obviously, on a Saturday in the big meal. Would it be legal? Now, they can't respond for two reasons. On one side of the coin, let's think if one of them spoke up. Of course you can heal on the Sabbath. Can you imagine what his buddies would do to him? Like, we set up this big trap so that he would heal on the Sabbath, and you go and tell him it's legal. Because if you tell him it's legal, then he can do it, and there's no repercussions. So he would never like sell out his buddies. Now on the other side of the coin, if he says, no, you can't heal. Now they're stuck with this religion where they're just the cruelty kind of bubbles up to the surface that we're more concerned about the rules and regulations than we are about this poor guy who's dying. Like God is more concerned with you jumping through all of these hoops than he is about this guy. That doesn't, that doesn't make, that's not really a good option either. 
And so they're totally just silent. Jesus is like, okay, I got you guys. So he takes this guy. In verse um, 4, he took him and healed him and set him on his way. So he heals the guy, sends him off. This in itself is a huge miracle. Like, here's the Messiah, the creator and sustainer in the universe. In their midst, here's a guy with a terminal disease. Jesus just like, all we know is that he, he touched him and he healed him and he sent him on his way. Like this is a, whoa, this is like a big deal. Like this is a major deal. But in this whole story, this guy has nothing to do with the story. This whole story is about religion and make, building a system of do's and don'ts that basically cut God out of the picture. That's a big issue. This is a huge warning to religion. And those that grew up here in Judaism or us in Christianity, this is a warning to us. This guy goes on his way. And I could, you know, Jesus sees them, obviously. They're a little bit angry. Their big trap just failed. They couldn't, they couldn't get Jesus because nobody responded. He asked them, can I heal? Nobody responded. So he just does it, sends them on their way. And they're like, no. And the, I think it's irony, or I, I think it's irony. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. But to not do something or to plan this whole event, I imagine this took a ton of work on their part. To get all of the religious leaders together on a Saturday that they would all happen to be at this guy's house, that they could coordinate finding this guy, that they could get Jesus to show up on the spot. For the Saturday rules, which you're trying, like they, they, they broke a whole lot of Sabbath rules, I would suspect, in order to make this happen. And so Jesus is looking at them like all of this, and he just, just blew us out of the water. And Jesus isn't done. He said to them, which of you will have a son or, or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? This is a question he knows the answer to because Jesus lived amongst them. He saw them on Saturdays. He knows that if an ox fell into a hole, they would immediately. And a son, they do the same thing. Alistair Begg was kind of funny on this. I think Alistair Begg has a teenage son or at the time that I read his stuff. He said, I think this is a trap because me... An ox, I'd pull out right away. My adolescent son, I kind of think he was up to something. I might let him sit there for a few hours, you know, like let him figure, you know, double, you know, think about what he'd done. But Jesus is like, you guys are hypocrites. Like you'll leave this lunch. And if you see any one of your prized possessions or your family in danger, you immediately will work. Yet you're trying to trap me with this guy. And they could make no reply to this. These are the guys that could say everything. They wrote all the rules and they're stuck. They're, they're silenced because they don't have the answers. And I can't, we'll see in verse seven that he's going to see this crowd. Suddenly there's this awkward silence. Jesus is doing the party. This is, you know, this was like everything was kind of getting to go. Jesus shuts them down right away. Everybody's kind of like, Standing around and oh, what are we going to do? He's, he's like filleting us open. Well, let's eat. I'm going to go, I'm going to my seat moving on. And then there's like this mad dash. See in their table, whoever was the host would have like the center seat in this U-shaped table. The seats closest to him were most valued. And so there's like this mad dash of the guests to get to these prized seats. And Jesus has seen them. Like step roll over, you know, step on everybody trying to get that most important seat, you know, trying to get the place of honor. 
And as they're making this dash, Jesus begins to speak a parable to them. And as I read this, I can't help but to think he's standing near the place of the honor and the guy who just taken out three people to get this seat. We've all played duck, duck, goose, right? This is what I see happening here. They're all trying to get to the choice seat. And so here's this guy sitting down or the whole group of them. They're all trying to get that most important seat. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, verse eight, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. So he says, listen, when you're invited out to this wedding, this banquet, and you see the seats and you see the pecking order, this is just common sense wisdom. Like I'd say that in this culture, they didn't want to be shamed, but I don't know of any culture that like being shamed is a good thing for the recipient, at least. He says, when you're invited, don't come take that, that choice seat because the most important guest will arrive late. And so there you are, you take the most priced seat, you're drinking out of the water glass, and all of a sudden they say to you, excuse me, sir, you're going to have to go get bumped back to the last seat. You'll be shamed. Don't do that. When we fly, like in September, there's something, one of the most funniest things that I ever have seen on an airplane happened. I always kind of like sitting near the front because after any length of flight, I want to be the first one off. Like, let's just get off of this plane. So I'm normally like in that the row or two. I don't like being in the very front wall with the bulkhead, but maybe like the second or third row from the curtain. You guys all know the curtain, right? The curtain that we try to peek through. That when you're sitting there with your knees at your chest, and you can see that before we've even taken off, they're passing out champagne and juice and warm, moist washcloths. And they're and I'm going, oh, man, someday, someday. And then you like, you know, yesterday's paper, I don't know if you guys saw it on the front page of the UT or maybe it's in the business section. They went over how some airlines are increasing their first class, but then they gave the ticket prices. And it's like, okay, there's no hope of me ever flying in first class. <laughs> like, it's not going to happen. And so we were, we were on our plane from Madrid. We just boarded from Madrid to LAX. And we were in that seat, and I'm, watch, I'm looking at those seats. I mean, the seats that, like, between each seat, you could do jumping jacks between the seats. They lay all the way down. Each one has their own TV. And it wasn't a full flight. I'm like, man, how great. Like, I just really want to be there. And then it's like everybody's boarded, and they seal it all up, you know. We take off. And I don't think our food had come, but, you know, you're, like, eating like this, trying not to, like... And all of a sudden, the guy to my left on the very front row, he gets up and he penetrates the curtain and he sits down in the first class section. And if you guys could have heard my thoughts, like I think everybody was saying it, but we were like, <gasps> and going, I can't believe the audacity of that guy. And then I'm like, okay, he's going to get kicked out. He's going to get kicked out. Nothing. I'm like, oh. Man, I'm so jealous of that guy. Like, if I do that, I would get caught in a heartbeat. And then finally, about 15 minutes into it, next thing I see is he's escorted out of the first class back to his seat. 
Nobody cheered audibly, but I could sense everybody. Like, yeah! Sucker! <laughs> nice try! And then the whole rest of the flight, he like laid back and pulled the blanket over his face. Like, this is that sort of shame. But Jesus says in verse 10, But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So when the one who has invited you come, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. I've heard of people being bumped into first class. It's never happened to me, and I don't ever see it happening. And I don't think that Jesus here is giving practical wisdom for us to kind of beat the system. Oh, you know, be humble so that you could be exalted. When alternatives had their bank with the speaker, I forget his name, he came and spoke, and he was an Irish guy. And he said, oh, we Irish... You know, I shared this when the missionaries came through. He said, oh, we're, we're very pride people, and what little humility we have, we're very proud of. And so Jesus isn't, like, giving us, like, the back door of how we can ultimately kind of advance ahead of people. I think what he's showing here is the heart of God and what he wants from us. Verse 11 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this idea of walking in humility... Like, yeah, we're special. God loves you. But that doesn't mean, like, amongst each other, that, like, oh, I'm so special. I'm so better than all of you because God loves me. No, he loves all of us. And, and God's example to us is that we love each other. There's a, there's a verse in the Bible. I'm sure you've heard of it. Every now and then I'll get the call of somebody who's trying to lovingly witness to a family member. And the whole sharing about Christ is sort of, like, backfired where it's turned into more of an argument and they're looking for the atomic bomb to show them that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's like the trump card so that they got to win the argument because one day they're wrong. Now, theologically, I mean, theologically, it's probably sound. It is in the Bible. But that passage, if you'll turn there in Philippians chapter 2, this passage, often people miss the primary purpose that Paul wrote this. The passage that everybody likes to jump to and to quote is, is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And there it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is a great Christological passage explaining who Christ is and looking at the whole picture of human history. But if we back up and we ask, well, why is this why did Paul write this here? What's the purpose of his writing? We go back up, well, really to verse 3. And in verse 3, after he talked about loving one another, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind in regard to one another, humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. So Paul from Philippians 2 to this point is trying to help us as followers of Christ 
be humble people, to, to love others like Christ loves them, that we would put ourselves lower so that we could exalt others and really bless other people. And then in verse 5, as he's thinking about this instruction of helping us to be Christ-like, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So then he points to the ultimate example of humility, which is Jesus. In verse 6, he says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then he gets into this end picture. But the whole purpose of this passage, the primary reason of Paul's writing is for us who follow Christ, the example of humility. And he said, listen, Jesus is God. He was always God in eternity past. Jesus did not come into existence on when we celebrate Christmas Day. That's not when he came into. He always existed in eternity past. He always will exist in eternity future. He is God. He created all things. But when he was born, he became man. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. So the kenosis that he was God. He's in heaven. Like if anybody would not want to become a man and come down and humble himself in this manner to be born in a stable where the, you know, like this isn't like the motel six of stables. This is like, if you, we live in Valley center, animals don't have like the bathroom section and then the non bathroom section in their stable. It's a big mess. He was born out in a barn and then, then ultimately was crucified, shamefully naked, beaten to a pulp. This is God, the creator, the, the only object that's worthy of our being worshipped. And yet he came. And why did he come? Because he loves us. Why did he go through the cross? Why did he humble himself? Because our sin has so entered the world and devastated our relationship with God that the only way that this relationship could be restored was through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And so back in Luke, when Jesus says this verse 11, he is not pitching away for fast advancement. When he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This exaltation is at the end times. It's not on this earth. And he's addressing this very religious crowd. This is the stuffy guys that are all decked out of all the do's and the don'ts. It's getting uncomfortable for these guys sitting at the table. And then Jesus goes and he looks at the guy who's hosting this party. And he says, and he also went on to say to the one who had invited, had invited him when you give a luncheon or dinner do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors otherwise they may also invite you in return see up to that point i thought that was going to be the penalty because these so once you start going to all these like little like things you know i don't like these social events like parties it's like oh because if you invite them then you're going to get in this you're going to get in the network and have to start going to the parties but actually, it's the repayment. It says, otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. He's saying, don't start inviting people 
You're, you're inviting them because ultimately you're expecting a return favor. It's the time of Christmas cards. You start, they start coming. You see them come in the mail, the little square cards. You open it. And I'm not a big Christmas card person, but I know it's like, okay, now I've got to send that person a Christmas card. Got to make sure I get that person checked off the list. When I go to coffee with people, if you invite, if you treat somebody to like lunch or coffee or whatever, you just treat them. Well, the next time you go, the thing is, oh, no, you got last time. I've got to pay you back. And, and he's kind of saying, well, you're inviting these people for your own social status. You're not truly being generous out of, out of being hospitable where you're not expecting anything in return. He said the true award is verse 13. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. It's interesting that the one crippled guy that was there wasn't really there. Like he'd already been sent away. The crippled guy that they invited, I'm under, I believe, was a total setup. That The guy wasn't really there because he was wanted. He was there to get Jesus, and then Jesus sent him away. And he says, give to those that can't pay you back, and you'll be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you'll re- be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, at the end of your life, when you stand before the Lord. This is getting way too uncomfortable for everybody in this room. And verse 15, I imagine, is a guy that's like, okay, we tried to start lunch or dinner. He's tacking us all. Now this guy's like, well, maybe we can move it along. Like, like kind of like, let's all just get along and be happy and not talk about all this stuff. Verse 15, when one of those reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Kind of like, well, brother, everybody in this room is good. There's no worry about us. We're all good Jews. And we're going to be at that banquet table in heaven. And it's just going to be good for everybody. And Jesus is like, oh, is that what you think? He's going to give this warning through a parable. But he said to him, verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner and invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to those who had been invited. Come, for everything is ready now. So during this culture, when you were going to have a big banquet like this, there were two invitations that went out. And if you didn't read carefully, you could miss this. So the first invitation we see in verse 16. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. This is where the invitations went out. People essentially RSVP'd and said, yes, I'm good to go. I'll be there. And then a day or that night or later, whenever the time was, the dinner would be prepared. The party would be made. People weren't, they didn't, life wasn't dictated by our watches. And so when everything was ready, then the slave would go out and say, hey, dinner served. The dinner bell rings. It's time to come and get it. And so this happened. The first invitation went out. They started preparing this banquet. These were people who said they would be there. The slave says, hey, the food's ready to go. And as he goes, he's going to find a bunch of excuses. Not legitimate reasons, but excuses. People who are kind of like, eh, I've thought about it. I don't really want to go. And, and as we go through this, we ha- this isn't about, this isn't etiquette 101. The issue is Israel's Messiah had come. These guys thought they had everything figured out and they'd missed it. And Jesus is now challenging them and that they'd missed the invitation or rejecting the invitation that God was giving to them. And so verse 18 we read, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, to the slave, I have bought a piece of land 
and I need to go out and look at it. <laughs> I bought a big couple acres of land, and I'm, I need to go just look at it. And I'm going to walk out there, and like, how much work does this take? Wow, look at all that land. I got a river that goes through it. It's rocks. That's nice. This is essentially, you know what? I'm really busy tonight. I got to wash my hair. Like, would you please excuse me for making it to the party? This is like a totally like really busy. Then the next guy, another one, verse 19 said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. This guy's like, hey, I just bought a bunch of ox. I need to lift the hood, kick the hooves, whatever you do with ox to try them out. But he already bought them. He's already tried them out. Like you don't buy something until you lift the hood or kick the tire. You know, I kind of stand there and goes, looks good to me. It's start. That's, you know, whatever our process of buying something is, you don't buy something and then check it out sort of thing. There's no urgency, but he says, ah, I got these ox. I need to, I just bought them. I need to test them out, check their hooves out. Please consider me excused. The third guy, verse 20, another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I can't come. Kind of going back to the law of when a young man got married, that he was excused from military service for a year. This didn't really apply to like a banquet. And it's like this, this invitation went out with, I don't know what, a day, we don't know, but a day, five days a week. Oh, you know what, I, I ran off to Vegas and got married by Elvis, and I, now I'm married, now I can't make your party. This is my good excuse of why I can't come. And so the slave goes back and lets the owner know in verse 21. And a slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Some have suggested that this first volley of people, Jesus is referring to the publicans and tax collectors, the sinners within Israel. Go to the ones that have been excluded by the religion within our country. Like, bring them back. I'm going to them. Then the second group we see that after he, this person, the slave goes out, comes back in verse 22. And the master, the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come that my house may be filled. And so here's this, this picture of, Go out. There's still room. Many have suggested that this is to the Gentiles, that this is to all nations to go out. Jesus, the Messiah, is not just for the people of Israel. It's for all people, that God loves all people groups. Jesus died for all humanity. And here they'd so isolated. And he's challenging them. He's giving them a warning not to miss the boat. And verse 24, he says, For I tell you, None of these men who were invited shall taste my dinner. This is like a bold. He's talking about the banquet at the end of, the, of, of time. That at God's presence, when this banquet, he's saying, you who were initially invited, you who I entrusted this message to, you're not going to be there. And as I look at this warning, at the very end, it reminds me of John chapter 1. So if you'll just turn one book to the, towards the back, and you'll, in John chapter 1, The Apostle John, the youngest of all apostles, is now the the oldest when he starts writing at the end of his life. And John begins 
in John 1, 1, kind of describing before, in the beginning, like before all things, describing Jesus and eternity. By verse 9, he gets down, he's focusing this light on Christ. And he says, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. This is saying, Jesus the Messiah came to his own. That's to Israel, the Jewish people. And those who were his own did not receive him. We see as we're going through Luke, as he's going to his death, his, his people, the Jewish country, his Jewish countrymen have rejected his offer. As he enters into Jerusalem, I think it's in Luke chapter 19, we'll see that as he enters the city, as he sees the great city, he begins to weep over Jerusalem. That his people had rejected his offer. And so here in John, we see that his people rejected him. But verse 12 is this going out into the surrounding areas. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's this picture in John. And John's going to start building this case to present Christ to all people. That they would come to know him as Savior and trust in him for salvation. And when I look at this story, this main warning, and for everybody in this church, like we need to take this to heart. Like when I read through the Bible, it was the religious people that so often missed it. The Pharisees who were supposed to be leading Israel, they were the spiritual leaders. They had totally missed Jesus in their presence. I wasn't, I mean, I went to church as a kid, but I wasn't really raised in the church. I wasn't on the inside track. I didn't really know. I just did my time on Sunday and that was it. Maybe once a month or sporadically. But coming to Christ as an adult, and the, the thing that kind of scares me most in raising kids it's like, it depends what, like, what line you follow with my daughters. Like, if they, it will take the, the good side of my wife's side of the family. <laughs> is, so now you have, her mom was like a missionary kid. Her dad, her grandpa is a pastor for my daughters. And for those of us that are in the church, we're raised in the church. There's like almost this inoculation to the gospel. Because we hear the message every single day. There's, there's an association with Christ, but not necessarily a relationship that we never truly come to understand how bad our sin is because we were raised in the church. So we think we're good by association. And if you travel around or if you travel around, I don't know if you can do the baptism circuit. I don't know how you actually do this, but the, the more you're in Christian circles and the more baptisms you sort of observe, there are many adults who are baptized that said, you know, what? I was raised in the church. I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was good to go. But then a friend began to challenge me and to say, just because you made some profession when you're six months old, just because you went to church and Sunday school, that doesn't make you a Christian. And then they come to realize that it's like, no, Jesus died for like me, that my sin separates and is horrible. And then they come to accept Christ as Savior. And then they say, you know what? I need to be baptized. Like my baptism as a kid didn't matter. Like I'm following him now. And so my greatest fear for my own children is I don't want them to become inoculated to the gospel. That they, they build up this immunity to the truth. And Jesus is kind of like shaking them. Like be concerned. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you're going to be at this banquet at the end. Just because you know all the facts doesn't mean you know me. 
And then this, this story paints this picture of like true, like humility. And the person that's been touched by Christ is truly humble. Because it doesn't matter what your, your pedigree is or what your spiritual history is. You're just a sinner saved by grace. You're changed by God's love. And then that affects how you see other people. Like it's not, oh, we're, there's special seats. Like in the Bible, it talks about don't save the front seats. But in today's terms, it'd be like, don't save the, the back seats. Because you've got to show up early to get a good seat in the back. Like Linda's up here on the front row today. I don't know. <laughs> there's, you know it's in the splash zone. But this picture of like, stop judging people. God loves all people. We need to see them through his eyes. And I don't know what your background is today, but if you were like me, see on the other end, this invitation that Jesus is sending out. See, I I mean, I kind of knew enough about the church, but I certainly was not making any attempt to live for God. Like I was totally out in the world. I'd come to Christ. And then as I started growing in Christ, I kind of thought I was excluded from any sort of service or going forward because I was, I viewed myself kind of as damaged fruit. Like, oh God, like this banquet or whatever God's doing, this is... This is for the people who speak in King James and wear the right clothes and listen to the right kind of music and and can quote all kinds of verses in the Bible. But me, I'm not I'm going to be on the outside looking. I'll be in, but I'm not going to be in. And I see from this lesson in Jesus, he's saying, no, you're totally it's not about what you've done. It's about what I've done. And all of you are loved by me. It's about trusting in me as savior. And I'm so glad that our party list looks different than God's party list. Because we would have a bunch of religious snobs in God's big party. Like if we were picking the teams like, oh yeah, that person's in, that person's in, that person's in. It's about knowing Christ. And a lot of people have a hard time with this whole, the, this, oh, people going to hell or that's not fair. And we don't want to get in the whole match of, Fair with God because our sin is real and our sin separates us from God. And what I see in the scripture is that if you've been saved, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, it's because of what God has done, not because of what you've done. And if you're excluded, it's because you've rejected his offer. All through the story, it's a rejection. God's not, Jesus isn't rejecting these Pharisees just because they're Pharisees. He's trying to teach them and lead them into salvation, but they're rejecting his method. One of my favorite shows, or it used to be, I think they stopped making it, but the deadliest catch about king, crab, fishermen, and the Bering Sea. Like there's a side of me that I'd love to just give it a shot one winter. Anna would never let me. And like, you know, like I couldn't, but like to go out to the Bering Sea in the middle of snow when it's like negative, whatever, water's like throwing around, crawling up the crab stuff. Like there's a side of me that thinks, man, that's great. Like I wish we could get like incorporate this into SEAL training because these guys are tough. They say if you fall in the Bering Sea during the wintertime, you have three minutes to be rescued or you're going to die. And I confess there's a side of me that likes watching the element of like, ooh, man's overboard. Is he going to make it or whatever? Well, one show, a guy went overboard and it was the best picture of like salvation. This guy goes overboard and it just happened where there was another ship like following a half mile behind. And when they say man overboard, it is like bells and whistles and everybody because that person's life on the line. And it's a matter of seconds. 
The second boat was able to come up to him. They threw him a life ring. He was pulled on board and they pulled him into the galley for you non-sailor types. That's the kitchen. They strip him down in the kitchen. They put a bunch of blankets and the guy is like, like that convulsing, shivering, trying to drink a cup of coffee. And all he's like, thank you guys. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. I'm so glad that you rescued me. I thought I was toast. What I noticed that he didn't say is, guys, you threw me that old life ring from the 70s. Couldn't you have dispatched a cool helicopter? Because it would have been way cooler if I could have been rescued in a helicopter and rode with the Coast Guard. I would have been able to be a couple days on the shore. Why didn't you guys, like, slow up and just stall the boat and throw a ladder so I could crawl up and show you how strong I am? Because the thing is, is he was thankful that he was rescued. And I can't speak of fairness, but I do know I'm thankful that God provided a way for us to be rescued. And he did that through Christ. Not of your own works, but of his work, his finished work. And you receive it by believing. And this last song I requested, I'm going to pray. It's an old hymn that was redone by, I think, Casting Crowns or somebody. This is, I got it right. Wow. But it's glorious day. And the beautiful thing about this song, like the hymn writers were amazing because their theology was so good. If you could memorize the, the words or get them stuck in your head to glorious day, you'll have like so much understanding of, of the message of Christ. And so, Father, I do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story. And, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us in this room to heed the wor- warning that's presented to us, that we would learn from the religious uh, men and women that you challenged Father, that we wouldn't get comfortable in our own works. Father, we pray that you would help us um, to understand the magnitude of the gift that you've offered to us in Christ. We thank you that Christianity and following Jesus is about relationship with him. We thank you that he did it all. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand grace in its entirety. Father, I pray for those in this room on the two sides of the spectrum. For the religious, Lord, we pray that you would help us not to get arrogant in our relationship with you. Father, help us to to realize rules and preferences that we've kind of added to your word. And Father, I pray for those, Lord, that are hurting, that are the ones that think that there's no way for them to be accepted into your kingdom. Your way doesn't make sense to us all the time, Lord, but to know that we are fully redeemed, fully restored, that in Christ we are not damaged fruit. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to reach our full potential in Christ. Lord, help us to be um, humble people that are hospitable and loving and kind to the people around us. Father, help us to see Um, each individual as a person that you love, that you died for. We need help. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.